0: the morning. I'm Marie. I'm an alcoholic. I just about had 14 anxiety attacks sitting there. I was told not to scratch my boots or anything else. <laughs> my pantyhose has come down three times. So I'm, I'm a wreck. I know I suddenly would develop a case of diarrhea. <laughs> I'm dizzy. Um, and I swear I don't think God's up this early in the morning. <laughs> I'm a member in good standing of the Primary Purpose Group in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I have no idea what you're going to hear this morning. Uh, I know I have to be done in time for the next speaker. So uh, if y'all read anything else, we'd be here a while longer. <laughs> So I've asked God to remove the self-centeredness from me, which is my nerves. And Millie always told me when you're nervous, it's just God's taking the truth out of you. (laughs) And uh, she was one of our old timers that we lost with about 45 years sobriety, who was my AA mama. And if any of you out there don't have an old timer in your life, be it man or woman, please find one, because they have been my rock since I've come to this fellowship. Um, I belong to a group that they call the Nazi group, and uh, I wore my military uniform today to prove it, (laughs) and I bring you greetings from all of them. Um, You heard George talking about Kevin yesterday. Kevin is from Ohio, but he's a member of our group because he's down there so much, and I can't tell you what it meant for me to see him yesterday because I love him because he loves AA as much as I do. And everybody here has been so good to us. I mean, they've just been wonderful to us. And if you'll bear with me, we'll get this show on the road. And then if you're in agony, it'll be over in a little while. And then you wait for the next speaker and get another message or maybe the message. Um, I'm to tell you in a general way, and they tell me to be real sure it's general, um, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And what it's like today always keeps changing. And, um, you know, I get behind this podium and I stand in awe and my heart flutters and I shake and it's because I am so grateful for this program. Because I stand up here today and my hair literally is standing up on the back of my neck when I realize how important this is. This is not about me. It's about carrying the message to the still suffering alcoholic. And to let that gal know that we do become happy, joyful and free. However, Pat M, who is just having it start to get sober all over again. I think you got a hundred days or something. I told her I would be happy, joy, and free after this meeting. So you keep coming back, it does work. I came from an um an alcoholic home, um, and when you come from an alcoholic home it's just it's it's just pure chaos. Uh, I'm from West Virginia. That's another reason I love it up here, because everybody talks like me. Um, I was raised in an old holler up there in West Virginia, that's what we used to call them. And when I was coming up, we were very, very, very poor. And I held on to that for a long time. I just thought there was just nothing. I had nothing inside, even as a little girl. My father was a full-blown alcoholic. My mother suffered from the disease of alcoholism. And for years, they both took turns going to mental institutions. He would go for his alcoholism. He would get out, and then she would do something, and she would go in for the untreated alcoholism. And to my knowledge, neither one of them ever found Alcoholics Anonymous Anonymous or Al-Anon. There were six of us children, and like I said, we all just grew up hating each other. And I started running away from home at an early age. I did not want to be there. And finally, one time, I got caught. And when I told them my tale of woe, and today they believe you when you tell them, but when I told them what happened to me, they just sent me back home. I developed, um, uh, therefore, it's sort of like I've never had any respect for authority. Because, you know, nobody ever did what I thought they should do anyway. They still don't today, so that's not changed. But uh, I, I finally ran away, and, and when they caught me, uh, I told them what happened, and then blah, 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 and I was saying, you know, that uh, there's a very abusive family. There was never any food. There was never anything. And I can remember uh, when people talk about being poor today, uh, by the way, I have to tell you this. I was telling George, I said, George, is, is, uh, Kentucky as poor as West Virginia? And he said, well, no, why? I said, because, well, I've been seeing those commercials with Ricky Stagg and with Feed the Children way up in the, the hollows of Kentucky. So y'all need to tell, uh, Ricky Stagg that you're not as poor as West Virginia, because I thought you were. <laughs> it was on a TV commercial. Anyway, when I got, when I got, um was growing up, I remember we'd take baths and wash tubs and and I remember one time my mom was pregnant and my daddy would go out and steal chickens he wasn't, we didn't have any chickens, he'd steal somebody else's and get her chicken broth and all that and then the, just, just the, the memories were never good the memories were never good and for years I would look at your mother or your family and I would want them to be mine and I would say poor old me, I know what it's like to start developing character defects as a young, young child I didn't know that's what it was at the time Obviously, I finally ended up getting what I wanted. Um, I remember running away from home one time, and, and uh, uh, they caught me. They brought me back. I ran away again. This went on and on. And uh, I got sentenced to a detention center, and I loved it. I loved being locked up. Uh, i tells tell you how sick I am. Um, I loved the food. I loved the attention. Uh, I just, you know, I had this Bonnie and Clyde image in my mind. And uh, anyway, I, I stayed there a while, and and I, they let me go home, and and then eventually I ran away again, and uh, my first drink, I was, I don't know what it is about the magic age of 13, but my first drink, I was 13, and it was moonshine, and I remember drinking this moonshine and the room spinning, and I just went out. I mean, I can't tell you what happened, I just, the room spun around, and that was it. My next meal, I went on a hayride, and all this stuff all merged together, and and somehow I ended up before a judge, and he sent me to two years in our a state reform school. Uh, I thought I liked the detention center. I loved the reform school um, because I got good food, I got clean sheets, I practically got tutored. Whenever I hear, you know, we get there's always somebody that. You know, raised above the raisins, and somehow, and and I can remember them talking about their boarding schools, and I would always say, yes, I went to a private boarding school. Um, <laughs> however, I left out the part that there was, you know, um, armed guards with shotguns and matrons, and and uh, about you know me starting the riots and being in a straight jacket and things like that. It didn't go along with their their sorority story. And But anyway, I was there for, for a long time, and I remember one night the pain starting to come into my life, and, and I remember uh, crying out for this mother that I hated. I had a, a, a relationship with my mother that even for years after into sobriety, I hated this woman. I couldn't stand the sound of her voice. I hated everybody in my family. Most of all, I hated myself. And if you're dealing with a, with a parent or or someone in your family that you're still having trouble with, just stay in the steps and the answers will come and the forgiveness comes and it does take time. I was there for two years and nine months and, and uh, one of the things I hated leaving when I left there was, you know, we got to do a lot of extracurricular activities and on Saturday morning they'd load us up and crack it on and put us on the back of a flatbed truck and, and take us down, work us in the fields all day. You know, when I got home I didn't have to do that and I kind of missed that. Uh I came home, and uh, my first experience was being home, and this is exactly what happened. Um, my dad uh, was drunk, and he was shoveling up the cockroaches in the kitchen. That's how we lived, and that's part of my story. And I'm not being dramatic. That's just an everyday thing to us. I remember three rats ran across my feet, and my mother gave me a dollar and a quarter, and she said, go out and get you some beer. I remember going out and getting me some beer. From then on, I started doing things that started causing me a little bit of trouble. I remember going to this judge. And I asked him, please send me back to reform school because I liked it so well. And he said, we can't do that. And my whole life uh was one of just one extreme to the other. So um I had to learn how to be a toughie in this reform school because he, I had to survive and I had to learn how to, to win fights, which I never did. I, you know, I was all mouth and, and, um, and anyway, when I, uh, got to the, where I was telling him that I wanted to go back and they decided that they needed to send me somewhere else so they sent me from the state reform school, they sent me to a cloistered monastery uh, full of nuns and uh, I thought, God, how am I going to do this now, you know, and I had to go from being the worst girl in the school to becoming the best girl in the school and I didn't know how to do that and I can remember being in this monastery and it was one of the most, it was a private girls' school supported by the state and I remember that, uh, I was thinking this was what I was wanting to be. All of a sudden I wanted to go from Bonnie and Clyde to becoming a nun. And, and, you know, I too pictured myself walking around with the long habit and the bees going, yes my dear, yes my dear. And, however, I was throwing my books down at the nuns and I was raising pain, I was getting in trouble and, and, um, I remember that that was one of the first times in my life that I was ever to know any kind of peace and it was one like Christmas time and it was it was snow, and the ground, it looked like it was just shining. It just looked like diamonds, and I remember going to, like, the Midnight Mass, and it was just, like, me and, and my belief at that time in the church. And uh, and uh it was the most peaceful time I'd ever known, and it was to be short-lived, and I was never to find that again until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. However, I stayed in the school. I graduated. My mother would write me letters while I was there, and she would tell me that, uh, that she was dying with leukemia, and, uh, my mother never had leukemia. Uh, uh, and as a result of that, for years in AA, I was the biggest hypochondriac coming and going. and nobody hold a candle to me, not even George. You know, I mean, when I got married to him, they sent me to a doctor to see how come kind of my mind made my body sick, and I thought everybody's like me, you know. <clears throat> but anyway, I stayed there, I graduated, and they told me I couldn't go home, so they sent me to my aunt's in Ohio. I went up there, um, uh, I did good in this school. I graduated with honors, and uh, I went up to my aunt, and first thing I heard was, you're going to be just like your mother. you want to get me mad, tell me I'm going to be just like my mother. And uh, I stayed there for a while, and um, things didn't go real well. Uh, I kept trying. I started at that time in my life to be a people pleaser. I would do anything for your approval. Anything. I wish you could have talked to some of those men. i did anything to get their approval. Uh, but anyway, it didn't work out, and I got a hold of a little pint of liquor, and, um, next thing I know, uh, started a lot of trouble, and they moved me clear out of town. They moved me from that town to another town, and, uh, I stayed there for a while, and I graduated, uh, in 1963, and I never will forget, uh, when I was in this little town, that's when John Kennedy died, and, uh, And Jackie Kennedy was my idol. I just, I just thought she was just the greatest thing coming and going and I wanted to be like her. And and I too, I had, I had a love affair with Dr. Phil Dare. George talked about him last night and I would have his pictures on the wall and, and him and John Kennedy, they were just, I would fantasize about these two. And then of course, uh, Kennedy was shocked. I remember I locked myself up to the weekend, and I just drank, drank, drank. And I was 18 years old, and this thing was really hitting me hard. But see, I'd already found my magic. I found what took that pain away. I had that alcohol. And I remember thinking, well, this is not for me. I've been out drinking one night, and the next morning I thought, you know, you know, you have your best thinking when you're coming off of a severe hangover. And I remember trudging through the snow, I felt like Joan of Arc, and I was going to the monastery, and I went in to talk to Mother Superior, and I told her I wanted to join the convent and become a sister, and devote my life to God. You know, you marry God, and when I got sober in AA, I thought I had too. <laughs> but anyway, um, she looked at me, and she said, Maria, my dear, when you find your place in this world, you come back. And over and over and over, I'd love to have found her to tell her I have found my place, and it's an Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyway, I came back to West Virginia. They didn't want me there, and and I quit my job, and I moved everything back. And my uh, when I took the taxi cab to my house, you know, I tell the things that make the most impact on me. And I remember this taxi cab driver, I gave him the address and told him where they lived, and he said, no, ma'am, nobody lives there. That place is condemned. And I said, so I just picked out a house I thought they might live in. I really did, and the door was unlocked, and I went in, and I said, Mom, I'm home, and it was the wrong house, and uh, he did take me back to this house. It was condemned, and later, it was an old store, big concrete front porch, and I had so much pride, and I remember when that porch caved in and made the front page of the Charleston Daily Mail, and I also remember when we went downstairs, and the the concrete had separated, that there was like two to three foot mountains high of Solox paint thinner cans. That's all my dad could afford to drink was paint thinner. And when you're an alcoholic and you have to have alcohol, you will drink, you will do anything you can. I met a little girl in West Virginia years ago. She was trying to get eight years of sobriety, got drunk and has never gotten back. And she was telling me how to try to get the alcohol out of the hairspray. This is a killer disease and you do what you have to. I stayed there for a while. I lived in this place even after everything fell through and the shame and the disgrace and the pride had already started and I carried this on for years and years. So I got in my mind that what I needed was a man. If I only had a man, not a man, a baby. If I only had a baby, everything would be alright. I would have something to love. Now, I didn't particularly want to have sex. I didn't want to have a man. I just wanted to have a baby. And uh, by the way, you know, I finally figured out that uh, the reason I never had, and I'd have had 12 children, I'm sure, but I was locked up all my life. I didn't know what sex was. And I was a virgin for 19 years, and I was so proud of that. And anyway, I ran into this guy to tell you how type alcoholic I was. I was when Dr. Silkworth says we're in full flight from reality, that is the truth. I was running from everything that might be real. Everything. He also tells me I'm mentally incompetent, and what I'm about to tell you, proves it. And this guy was, I went to this little stop at this drive-in restaurant called the Ponderosa, and uh, this man came up, and he was in an old beat-up 50-model four-station wagon. He was on crutches. He had uh, a black eye and a tooth knocked out, and he told me I had, and he was drunk, and he told me I had pretty brown eyes, and I got pregnant, and I got married. Just like that. <laughs> Uh, after I got pregnant and after we got married, the night we got married, he had a date. And I never will forget, uh, he did. He had a date. I found it out later. He took me home, bought me one of those little striped tigers. At that time they were saying, put a tiger in your tank. And I got the tiger in my tank and he went out on a date and that was it. I mean, truly. I mean, it was the weirdest one marriage you've ever heard of. And uh, and I remember thinking how much I loved this man. And I knew nothing about love. And and, and what I know today, I've learned through through the, the meeting halls of Alcoholics Anonymous. But anyway, this marriage was to be short-lived. I had two children from that marriage. And in case I forget, when one was five months old and the other was three years old, uh, his mother came to get him after he'd taken off with a redhead. And I I never had those children again for years and years and years. Uh, because by that time, the bottle came first. You I can stand here today and tell you that alcohol came before me raising my children. I'm not proud of that. But I was not capable of being a mother. And that pain I would have from wanting to hold that child was absolutely unbearable. Because there was a, a hole there that nothing could fill. And I finally found something that worked, work, and that was the alcohol. I went to, I got to a place where I thought, I can't think anymore. You know, my husband had taken off. I had these two kids. I had to move in with my mother. It was just one nightmare after the other. I remember being pregnant one time, and, and he did something. I started finding out about these women, and I took the lightweight part of the Electrolux cleaner, and I liked to beat him to death, and he had me arrested. And I was pregnant, and I looked so peaceful and serene and innocent and... And it was awful, and I never Will, I said, if I ever get pregnant again, please don't go to jail. God, you're just so sick all the next day, the smell, and, and of course, again, I was one of those kind of like George that came to the point where I got a little used to going. But anyway, when he moved out, I remember calling up this taxi cab driver and saying, take me to a nightclub. And I remember they took me to this nightclub. I had one drink. I came back, and I had a fight with him and ended up in jail. And it started like that, and it was never to change from there on out. I reached a point where I thought that I just—the only thing I needed to do was I couldn't be a mother, and I could—I found alcohol was I needed a job where I couldn't think. Prior to this, something happened in my life that I used for 11 years to keep me um, to keep as an excuse or an alibi to continue to drink. I didn't know I had the disease. I didn't know about the phenomenon of craving. I didn't know all these things. But there were certain things that I did know, and I knew when I picked up that drink for a while, I could be anybody else other than who I was. And it worked for me for a while. And I remember thinking, you know, I got up one morning, there was a little a girl's picture on the TV, she was nine years old, and they said, have you seen this child? And to make a long story short, she was found murdered and raped. My father came in from the funeral, told me he was going to kill himself, and he did. And, and he was a full-blown alcoholic. My brother was... And mom, the eight months later or nine, who got killed. I lost the baby and I said, to hell with it. And that's just how I lived. I watched him come and put my mother in the little white coat. I did not know I was immersed in self-pity. I did not know that I could nurture self-pity. I could develop that. And it was just, it's almost like, it's like the book says, it gave me such a perverse form of satisfaction. If that makes any sense. I felt comfortable with all those defects of character because I never knew any other way to live other than that. So the day came, I thought, well, all this had happened. My children weren't with me. I was living with my mother, and I thought, I need to get a different job because I'd always had good jobs. And, and you know, I look kind of decent today, but, you know, I have to work on everything. I have to work on tucking it in, putting it up, fixing the hair, just just the past being attractive, you know. And back then... Uh, I've, for some reason, I thought, I got it in my mind that I wanted to become a bunny. Um, and I remember there was an ad in the paper for the Charleston Athletic Club, which was a big to-do back then, and I thought, they no way they're going to hire somebody like me. But I tucked it in, fixed it up, did all that stuff, and I went up there, and I got the job. I couldn't believe it. And I wore the cutest little outfits and the little fishnet net hose, and I started thinking, boy, this is the way to live. And I, what I did was I was about to embark upon a, a, a this road that, that took me deeper and deeper and deeper into the pits and hell of active alcoholism. And I don't know when I crossed that line. All I know was when I drank, I couldn't stop. When I drank, I couldn't predict my behavior. And when I picked up a drink for however long it lasted, I could live in my fantasy world. I could live in a place where nobody could get to me. I didn't know that later on down the line that would lead me. <clears throat> I also know today that all this knowledge that I have about alcoholism cannot and will not keep me sober. Everything I've learned about all this self-knowledge will not keep me sober. I know that it has to come with the power of God. That God alone is the one who helps me. I have to have the power like George was talking about in that 11th step last night. When I went into the club business, I started, that's when I was telling little Pat this morning, I said, I didn't go to jail like a lady. I'd go to jail in a paddy wagon, handcuffed. I would create havoc. I was a, I was a, a, oh, I was a violent, violent alcoholic because I had so much rage in me. When I came to AA and y'all thought you used words like anger, I thought you were sick you know, I said angry, I got. I was just volatile. Every time I tried to kill myself, I would do it with some sort of uh, be dramatic. Uh, you know, I mean, I, uh, one time uh, they came and got me, and, and being a good alcoholic and being in the nightclub business, I remember I had this red fake purse, safer, and it looked like a little, you know, what in there, and uh, and I remember. I had real, real long hair, and I remember putting on this three-piece-black negligee and laying myself out to die. And and I called everybody and told them what I was going to do. And I didn't know which one would call to get me help first, you know. And and most of the time when I would try to kill myself, I would put a call in in case I forget, you know, because I really didn't want to die. But there were many times, that, that one time in particular when I almost did it by accident, But I remember waking up in the hospital, been pumping my stomach, and then they'd let me talk to a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist, I told him, I said, I was just wanting some attention and laughed it off. And you know that he gave me, and I needed to borrow a dime to make a phone call to call a cab. And that psychiatrist gave me a dime and a cigarette, and I went home in a taxi cab like that. I think they should have locked him up. He was fully clothed. I had no clothes on and that's how I went home. I mean, my memories of people helping me are not real good, but I I knew something was wrong. But George always tells me just because I'm trying to be honest doesn't mean it's the truth. It's what I remember, you know. But anyway, this nightclub deal, it started getting worse and worse. I had a lot of relationships that were, oh, my God, I couldn't even go into those. Uh, I don't know who they were. Uh, you know, I would wake up, and there would be these nameless faces, you know. And, and see, down inside, all oh, I wanted so bad to love somebody, and I wanted somebody to love me, and I didn't know how. The only one I had a real good ongoing relationship with was Jimmy Swagger when he'd come on television, and I'd have that drink in his hand, and, and he put his hand up there, and i put my hand on that screen, I was right there next to God when I did that because I wanted to stay sober. I mean, I wanted what he, what that man had. I wanted that peace, but he was sober and I didn't know how to stay sober. And I didn't even know that I was at a place in my life where I could not go without drinking. But anyway, all this trouble kept, kept on coming and, and, uh, so a woman came up to me. I started gaining a lot of weight and, um, the truth was, I had such a reputation that nobody wanted me to work for him anymore. I was a bartender, and I worked every place in West Virginia, and uh, my reputation was preceding me now, but this woman saw something, and she said, Marie, I want you to come to work for me, and again, one extreme to the other, and I said, well, where, where do you work, and she said, the Girl Scout Council, <coughs> so I left, going to jail, the bars, all of that, and I've became a bookkeeper for the Black Diamond Girl Scout Council. And I could not explain to them when they would get my insurance papers in there about possible O.D. had been drinking or or I'd have an irate wife chasing me and I'd have bruises and I'd come in and I'd be sick. and So I lasted there for a year. And um, I remember, you know, thinking this was probably my last big shot at doing something halfway decent. But again, someone else had an interest in me, and I don't know how alcoholics do it. You know, 12 and 12 says the alcoholics have the ability to earn far above the average income. We just don't want to work. You know, or at least I didn't want to work. I wanted somebody to hand me what I wanted when I wanted it. I didn't even want to work for my sobriety. You know, when it talks about being, your life being unmanageable, I thought if I had a, if I had a, a, man, a car, a social security number, and a place to live, what's to manage? I mean, that's, that's life. And I can remember being a bartender and those women at those tables, they little, pretty little like IBM girls, you know, I was so jealous. And they'd come in there and, and they say, well, I'm going to go home and take a look at myself. And I'm say, God, that's pitiful that they don't know who they are. Now, I'm over here in the corner, hopped up on everything coming and going, and drunk out of my mind, bright future ahead of me, and, and thinking there was something wrong with it. But anyway, I left there, and I ended up going to work, uh, believe it or not, to uh, the governor's office. I, you know, I don't know how we get there. Uh but somehow I got there, and, and of all places, I was with the State Department of Education for a long time, three years, I think, and then I went to work. Uh, uh, Jay Rockefeller set up this little small business service unit, and, and then I got important. <laughs> I got a car and a briefcase. and. And and I started having some the trouble. Uh, they would be looking for me, and I'd be at the chamber office having Bloody Mary's in the morning. And one day, it all just ended. It all just ended. One day, I just started vibrating like I am now. And I started shaking, and, and, and I made those excuse. If you're a woman, I said, it's kind of like that time of the month. I need to go somewhere. And they let me go. And I remember going and buying, uh, asking strangers, where's the liquor store? You know, and I remember buying a sift, and, and I told her I would meet her somewhere, and I remember going downstairs and chugging this bottle, just drinking it. And, and, and for the first time, you know, that was one of the big, big warning signals that I had missed, all the warning signals. And for the first time in my life, I lay drunk for a week and didn't know it. I had to drive my boss around. This time, she had to drive me around. And I laid in this little, by this time, every, the, somebody I was going to marry had thrown me out, and I was in this little two-room efficiency all alone. And I'm, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but you know how we are. I was laying on the floor, and I was trying to get that vodka to my mouth, or flat on my back, trying to, and it was pouring all over my face because I had to get it into my system. And I remember calling in sometimes and telling them that I wouldn't be there and when I, after I got out of detox, they said that I called and they said, well, you called a week ago. I didn't remember what had happened. I knew nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous except one time I'd seen a movie called The Days of Wine and Roses. And I remember sort of a with, with Jack Lemon. And, and when that girl talked about how she liked, uh, she was liking chocolate, and she said the world was so dirty to her. And the world was always so dirty to me. And thank God today it's not going to this future. And I remember picking up that phone and I said, Call A-A-A. Uh, That's I've given another initial. The next thing I remember was I heard a woman coming up the steps saying, al on hell, that's an alcoholic if I ever saw one. <laughs> Later I found out I called two or three people. I did like my suicide attempts. I wanted somebody from this AA outfit to come and get me. And I remember she came up there, and when she got there, I was standing up, and I was knocking on a piece of wood, big sheet of wood, trying to figure out how to fold this wood up and put it in my hide-a-bed. I was going in, I was starting to hallucinate. And I remember later I thought I was clean. She explained to me I was dirty. She said my hair looked like it had been combed with Vaseline. I remember I bought this nightgown. It was pink, bright pink, and in big, bold letters. This color, which just celebrates the bride. That color, it said, "Baby, light my fire," all the way down the side, and it went clear to the floor. And that's how I went into detox. I was in there. I reported all the doctors and nurses for drinking because I saw them. I saw all kinds of things while I was in there. I had developed a friendship with this one little woman. She was about that big. And she would sit on the water sprinkler and just laugh at me and laugh at me. And, and then I'd get down there and I'd chase that half lizard, half mouse underneath my bed. I was trying to play with it. And later I found out that I went into something called the lady And for me, it saved my life. Because it had me so afraid of drinking or well, that happens to some of us, honey. And if it had that in you, you keep drinking, and it will. It's inevitable. It happens to all of us if we keep drinking? And I remember them coming and talking to me about the meeting of alcohol, about going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I said, well, you're not going to force me to do anything. And uh, they said, that's right. So a few days later, they came down the hall and uh, it says time to go to a meeting and I said well you told me that you wouldn't force me to go to that meeting and they said well you don't have to go and they turned around and walked off and I can remember thinking oh my god I better go. And I said, well, since you told me I could go, I'll go. You know, I had to be my way. And I remember I had this multicolored Chinese robe on. My hair was sitting up there somewhere and I was vibrating. And some guy was talking about his teeth being in a tree and I thought, he needs to be here, not me. And it was one of those deals. But at the end of that meeting, I didn't want to hold hands and there was a man on either side of me, big man. And this was People would come in off the street, and I was in, it was a clinic-type setting, and that pride, how devastated, so embarrassed. You know, drunk, we just have those. We're just so self-righteous, I was embarrassed. And they grabbed a hold of my hands, and they wouldn't let go, and I struggled, and they wouldn't let go. And there was a little girl there that night that came in, and after I calmed down, she came in, and she gave me her picture. And I still have that book today. And I took March the 8th. I waited three days after my last drink. And that was March the 8th of 79. So I would be sure that all the alcohol is out of my system. That little girl that gave me her book is a little girl that had eight years sobriety. No, I'm sorry, that's not the one. It was another girl who had six years sobriety. She got drunk and never made it back to Alcoholics Anonymous. But I still have her book with her phone number and her name in it. And there's not a time that I don't open that up and I'm not grateful for what she did for me because she gave me something. She gave me that night a book that later on was going to be the, one of the greatest things that I own in my life because I love the big book about the Hall Anyway, they came and got me. They took me up for a meeting and I remember that night I went to the meeting and I was talking about if I had a gun I would shoot alcohol is what they said. You know how we do. And I was telling them about waking up with, with these uh, well, I, was telling I woke up these three Lebanese men one morning and everything's all right, nothing happened. And, and anyway, they kept giving me the elbow and said, you don't tell everything in an AA meeting. And I said, well, you all asked me and you talked about yourself. I thought they didn't care about me because they just talked about themselves. And I was always used to having people probe me for questions and all that. And anyway, um, I never forget George was the one that came up and started giving me this 13-step, you know, you're rather, you're attractive, and I thought he could have spruced that up a little bit, and how, how we got some sick people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and how, you know, everybody's not sober that's in the rooms, and, and anyway, I just sort of thanked him and dismissed him, and, and we went out to eat that night, and that night, everything, I just fell apart when we went to breakfast, and they ignored it, you, you don't pay an alcoholic attention because if they had paid attention to me shaking, I would have been up in the hospital trying to get shots to calm me down. They said, oh, that'll go away. Just eat You know, I mean, I never got any compassion getting sober. I try to resign from the group. they say, after the meeting, we'll talk about it, you know? Just no respect for a newcomer. But anyway, that night, I got a phone call, and it was a man 13 years sober, and I was about eight hours dry, probably. And he said, Marie, he said, My name's so would you like to have someone come watch T V with you? I talked. Well, what would you say? Of course I did. He came up, my God I learned about Alcoholics Anonymous. He started talking about going into the history of Bill and Bob and AA and and how good his life had been. He shared his experience and everything with me. And the only way I can tell you that I got Alcoholics Anonymous that night was through injection. And if you don't understand it, I'll explain it to you after the meeting. <laughs> now, today, you know, you don't share, even in a group, any experience other than what you have had. I'm not supposed to sit in a group and tell you what I think about something or how things should be. We don't give advice in Alcoholics Anonymous, we share experience. And in our home group, I share that experience. Because I was coming out of a, a meeting, uh, me and this guy were together, hunky dory, and I hated all the women because they didn't want me happy, and they had somebody. I didn't have a dog, a cock race, or nothing to go home to. And you all told me I couldn't have, wasn't advisable to have a relationship in Alcoholics Anonymous. That didn't work. But what did work, what did help me was coming out of a meeting one night, in my four-inch spike, my tight pants and my cleavage showing because I was going to make you women look bad. We were walking across the parking lot and and I heard something go off like firecrackers and I ducked, he ducked, and I came up and he was going, I was still there. And I remember I raced up over this yellow car and there was a woman there and what had happened was she had let six shots off at me over my head. And I'm here to tell you, when she told me what to do, I assured her no uncertain times I would never see him again. She, somehow we missed the being married part. Um, also, I would venture to say that that lady was not a member in good standing of the Fellowship of al uh, Anyway, this went on. This went on. A taxi cab driver came that night, and I told him, I said, uh, I said, somebody's trying to kill me. And and there was a bar down the street and I knew if I walked in that bar through those double doors I knew I would never walk out again. I knew that. And I had that cab driver take me home and then I called that phone number and I called that woman and I said, You had told me to call you if I was serious about getting sober or I wanted to get sober. I said, I need I need help. And I to tell you from that day forward my life started changing. My life started changing. I had to do a lot of things in Alcoholics Anonymous that I never, ever wanted to do. And I'm going to tell you, just, and I'm going to be done here in about 15 minutes, because when I'm done, I'm done. And and when I got to South College Anonymous, I came into a group that didn't care what I thought. They didn't care what I thought. They had no problem telling me to mind my own business. I'd say something, and they'd say, you know, this would be a few months down the road, and they'd say, Marie, you ain't got the smell off your breath yet. You know, and I, and I'm developing and, and, and I'm trying to become part of this thing. But God, they love me. They love me because they told me the truth. And they taught me, they taught me about, they made me want to come back because they love me. I used to be with Gracie, and she's my original sponsor, and I'd sit with her two o'clock in the morning and I'd say, Gracie, will I ever have anything like this? Will I ever have a nice apartment? Will I ever have a job? Will I ever have a man to love? She said, yes, you will, honey. And then I'd ask her, and she would sit and tell me the beauty of Doctor Bob and Bill Wilson, And she would tell me the reason of of the spiritual experience that that Bill had. She went into everything with me. You know, and how Dr. Bob thought that, that wanting to drink for two years, so in case that mine didn't go away, that he stayed sober wanting to drink every day for two years, so I could too. I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. For the first time in my life, I wouldn't let you all know it, but I found something that I had tapped into, I was honest. Now, you wouldn't know that when I stood in the meeting rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, so I wanted you to think that I hated you probably most of the time I do You know, I can remember being three weeks sober. They took me to a conference. I remember old Wesley P. God bless him. He's one of our old timers, and he looked at me, and he said, did you ever think you would stop and think you might not want to be sober? And I remember how I cussed him now. I remember when I was four months sober, Jim W., a speaker from Texas, I was telling Pat this today, uh, gave us a, a, a beautiful message, but I walked up to him, and I said, I want you to know that I didn't get a damn thing out of what you had to say today. <laughs> Three weeks later, I went back up to him, and I said, Jim, I'm that idiot that was, you know, getting new, and I said, I loved your message this morning. You taught me how to respect people. And most of all, when I got sober, even though you were hard on me, you never took away my dignity. You allowed me to have dignity and the way that you thought I should have it because I destroyed everything I ever touched. So when I looked at young man's I knew that deal. I'm going to see through this. I had a real experience. I was a year and a half sober. By the way, I did meet a man in an Alcoholics Anonymous. I was five months sober. I had been through the steps. I don't tell them, wait a year. I say, I give them my experience. Do the first nine steps and live happy ever after. I don't know what to tell you. You know, I can just share my experience. And I met this man now Anonymous. We married. Uh, and I, I, got five months sober. I do not recommend it for anybody. I put him through hell for three years. I would go give a talk at nine months sober, come home, and throw clay pops up against the kitchen water. You know, I would fire, I found out I fired my original sponsor seven times the first year. You know, I would take your inventory in a heartbeat and spread it all over the group. I did everything I could to keep us not have any unity at all. You know, but I kept coming back, and they kept loving me in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was a year and a half sober, these children, you know, uh, I married George. We moved to the beach. We went broke. I've been broke more times than sobriety. Than I one of these days I'm gonna make some money and hang on to it. I don't know what happens. We just make money, get broke. Make money, get broke. So it's all about, I guess, sobering up. But anyway, we had moved to the beach and uh, we were living on savings and and I was trying to get sober and 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 George had at that time probably 14 years. I had maybe a year and a half. And I knew, I'm going to talk about this fantasy thing. I knew, because my mother and father had been institutionalized many times. I knew it was genetic. I knew I was going to, it was hereditary. I was going to go crazy. And I was never going to get to where you all were in sobriety. And I remember laying there in the bed one night. Miss Peter kicked on in the hall. And I said, and I jumped her off the bed and I said, I'm going to I heard about that room where there's no doorknob on the inside. And I'm going to go in that bathroom and start laughing hysterically. And I'm never going to come out. And he said, Marie, he said, you can't hold a negative thought and a positive thought at the same time. The only thing I knew that was positive in my life was one three-letter word, and that was God. And I laid in that bed, and I said, God, 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 until I fell asleep. The next day, I got a letter from my daughter that I had not heard from in eight or ten years, trying to find her mother. And this is how it has worked for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. You tell me to take this action. I take this action. When I do what you ask me to do, I start getting results. And when I get the results, there's no denying that there's something working in my life. When I got my experience with the third step was I was four years sober, and I'm a, I, some other it takes longer. And I remember thinking, I'm just not getting anywhere. I was, was in a hospital in Charleston because my nerves were you know, untreated alcoholism will send you bad as hell if you don't do something about it. And I remember telling George, I, you know, I couldn't go on. I talked to my sponsor. I came back and, and what I had done was, was the third step. I said, I had so much confusion. He said, he got the book and he said, let me, let me tell you what that step means. And we got down on our hands and knees. He said, take my hand and now read along with me. And I felt embarrassed. I felt hokey, I felt spiritual. I felt all these feelings. And when I got done, I was left with. Yeah, I overlooked that part in the book where it says we need to take. We should take this step with someone, but it is better to take it alone than with someone who might misunderstand. I overlooked that whole thing. I was one of these that I would talk to. I could memorize that book, you know. But I was doing it for the wrong reason. you know, at eight, nine years sobriety, I didn't want to drink. By the grace of God, I hadn't wanted to drink through these problems in sobriety, but it's like I wanted, I thought I was losing my mind again. And I remember an old timer coming down, and I was running around, and I was, God, I've been in service forever, it seems like, and and always active, sponsoring people, being seen. You know, some of us want to be Miss AA, and you hear that, but it's true. If something happens, you get so carried away with the duties of you performing Alcoholics Anonymous that I forgot to do anything about me. And an old timer sat down and he said, Marie, he said, there's a difference between action and activity. And he said, you're all caught up in the activity of alcoholic phenomena and you're not doing a thing about yourself. And when he said that, I was able to go ahead, and for me, I had to do another fourth and fifth step and get through that. And what I found in that fourth step was the same thing I had found the last two times I did it, and and over and over and over, and and the person who heard my fourth and fifth looked at me and said, do you realize what you're saying? You're saying, see, now am I good enough for you? Now will you accept me? Well, today is the result of that. You know, today I I can accept who I am most of the time. You know, and, and some of us have bigger mouths than others and alcoholics anonymous. I'm not real popular all the time. I'll tell you why, you come in our group and you want to have a relationship with one of our newcomers, and you see that the last place she has to go, and there's nothing waiting on her but a casting, and I believe strongly that this program works, and in our group, you don't fool with our newcomers. If you do it, we don't know about it, we got a little thing, and you got to go through me to get to that new drum because she'll die, she'll die if she gets in a relationship, and she can't make it. You know, some can, some can't. I got to that point, and then at the end of that, when I worked through it, I found out for the first time in my life, AA is really working for me, you know, because I was starting to find a little bit of that freedom. I've had a lot of trouble in sobriety, a lot of trouble with growing up. I love that chapter in the back of the book. that talks how to handle sobriety. I knew how to drink, you know, and it almost killed me, but I didn't know how to live sober. Sometimes today, something will happen in my life. I went to a bad thing last year. We'll talk about it a little bit or a year before last, and heaven's where of it. And I woke up one day in alcoholic Anonymous, and my life was over something devastating had happened uh, to to do with finances. And and I just thought, it's all over. You know, and and for the first time in my life, for the first two or three days, I did real good to support uh, this other person and what we were dealing with. Real good. But then it was just a matter of time that I was into that self-righteousness and how is this situation going to affect me? You know, I know today that my self-centeredness is the thing that will always first and foremost kill me. I know that today. Today I try to go to the meetings of Alcoholics and wrongs with an attitude of just becoming peaceable. Just be in a place when I, where I can really listen. The 11th step means more to me today than it ever has. You know, if I can just take that little Saint, uh prayer of St. Francis of the and just ask myself on a regular basis, when I'm wanting someone to feel sorry for me or do something for me, if I can reach out and say, wonder what I can do for them. You know, when I do that 11 step at night, I always come up short. You know, just "What can I put into the mainstream of living. You know, I always come up short. You know, today in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had something I never had my whole life. I've got a chance and I've got hope. And if there's any new people in this room tonight, for God's sake, just keep coming by you know, AA works. I never thought it would work for me. I never thought that the day would ever come when I could open up a book and I could begin to understand just a little bit of that. You know, AA has done everything for me. I was telling somebody, you know, if you if you get anybody behind these podiums that, that that's talking and sharing, no matter, you know, everybody gets nervous, if you fall flat on your face people are gonna love you. It doesn't make any difference. As high as you ever get an alcoholic it's anonymous display. You know, and today I can accept to a degree criticism a little more than I used to. You know, the pride's getting a little better. Today I'm able to love a man. You know, we, uh, and I do love this man. And we've had a good relationship because we've learned how to fight fair. And we call fighting fair just telling it how it is. You know, there's, there's no axes to grind, no people to please. It's, it, it's us. You know, and if you want to be loved, you'll find it an alcoholic anonymous. Those two children in my life today, I have three grandchildren. I don't get a feeling. That little daughter, that oldest daughter of mine, we had I had little grandson. She moved to the beach. Everything was just going so well. And then her husband ended up on something other than alcohol, and it destroyed her whole relationship. And she couldn't come to me. You know, I could sponsor all these girls, but my daughter couldn't come to me. And today she's coming to me. You know, so what you do, it just don't get much better than that. If I could say anything to close this meeting, I would just want, first of all, thank you for giving me the life you've given me in AA. And I've given everybody, that's in my home group, I've given them permission. If you ever see me going in the wrong direction, for God's sake, come and get me. If you ever see my ego getting so out of whack that I think I've got all the answers, then you come and get me. You know, and I love what little girl I sponsor says. There's so many people that's done so much for me. And if there's somebody in this room today that's helped you to get sober, thank them before they leave this building today. You may never have a chance again. You know, thank you very much, my love. <laughs>